Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneurial Podcast. My guest today is known as Mr. Mentorvader. His name is Brian Marcel. Brian is the chairman of IBCS Group, which is the International Barcode Systems Group. He's known for bringing the game-changing barcode technology to Central and Eastern Europe and even as far as Russia. With over 35 years of hands-on experience, Brian has seen and done it everything has done everything in the corporate space and is here to tell us a little bit about his entrepreneurial journey and how he started his company and share some lessons that you can apply in your business to see some immediate success. I'm pleased to have Brian on the show today to share with us about his life, his business, and his adventures. So with that said, Brian, welcome to the show. Oh, Hachi. Um, it's really great to be here, especially the other side of the pond so through modern technology, we can chat. That's pretty good, really. Yeah, yeah. And I think the one thing I neglected in your bio is that you're the, you're the best-selling author of the new book, Raise the Bar, Change the Game, a success primer for budding entrepreneurs who want to change the world, which is blowing up on Amazon right now. So I'm pleased to have you on the show today, Brian, to tell us a little bit more about yourself. But before we get started, I just want to ask you a quick question. So I know you started this business over 30 years ago, but before you started your company, you two had to get out of school, find a job, you know, find your feet, and then start your company. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in the business world. Yeah, well, I actually started my career in the London Stock Exchange when I was 18 or something. Um, and it was my grandfather's firm. Mm. But I didn't really fancy working in an institution. Um, so eventually I got fired, actually, mm -hmm. which was a bit embarrassing in my grandfather's firm. So I went on to try commerce. Uh, so I joined a company called Wiggins Teep, which is a leading British paper manufacturer. They sent me to South Africa to enhance my career and learn the art of sales and marketing. Mm. So um, when I, uh, well, actually, I met my wife there, Liz, in Cape Town, and um, we eventually returned to the UK, and I got involved in the early days of barcoding, um, and I started with uh, these things called Film Masters, which is basically a piece of film, piece of artwork, with the uh, barcode on it, which printers would use to put a barcode on products. And um, I'd always really wanted to set up my own business, but I, I just didn't know what to set it up in, oh. you know. And uh, it was uh, really these barcodes actually selling them that uh, really made me realize, oh, yes, this is a great business. Um, I'll have a crack at that. Okay. Oh, awesome. And from reading the book, I know that it took you quite a while before you decided on what you wanted to do. You were actually around 35 years old when you started this company after getting some experience. I know these days a lot of people are anxious and gung-ho to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, start something in your teens and then, you know, become a billionaire in your 20s and then retire in your 30s. But, you, it, well, compared to today, it seemed like you took the slower route. So, also, I guess starting off, what's some advice you have for people that are trying to rush and force the entrepreneurial process? 
Yeah, I think the big thing uh, these days is people are looking for ideas. Mm-hmm. Once once they've decided they do want to start up their business, um, you know, what sort of business do they want to start, uh, similar to my problem? And I think, you know, people keep looking for an idea that is revolutionary, that will disrupt the market or has never been done before. But if you think about it, just about everything's been done before. So... Uh, while you're wasting your time inventing the next Walkman or iPad or something like that, uh, rather do something you're passionate about that people are doing, but do it better. You know, go the extra mile for the customer. There's so much room for improvement. If you look at the service industries these days, you know, customer service is pretty poor. Uh, So it's not too difficult to improve on that. And you can uh, start your business based on that. You can always change course if mm-hmm. you do find uh, the most amazing thing. But, of course, if you're an inventor, you can always invent some amazing product, and then that's sort of completely different. That could be a game changer. Yeah. And I, and I like one thing you said in the beginning of the book, which was that you must have a business plan, and you don't need to necessarily start off with a long business plan. It could be just one pager, but it has to be written in the smart format, which is specific, measurable, actionable, result-oriented, and timely, correct? Well, so many businesses, Chief, fail uh, because they don't have a business plan, and I'm absolutely stunned how few businesses have business plans. To me, it's kind of the first thing you do, like when you get up in the morning, you know, you clean your teeth. Mm-hmm. You just have a business plan. Um, otherwise, how do you know what you want to do? How do you know where you want to go? Um, it's, uh, you know, you need, you need to have five goals or so per year and mm. some strategies to achieve those goals. You need to have a vision. You need to have a purpose. You know, what's the point of my company? Why should people buy from me? What's in it for them? These kind of things need to go down on paper. And uh, most people just don't seem to do that. So, yeah, you must have a business plan. Yeah. And I did I did say just one or two pages because I think one of the reasons people don't is it kind of scares them off because some of the bigger companies have maybe 50 or 60 pages or more mm-hmm. of a business plan. Uh, but, okay, they, they are very big and have to uh, deal with lots of different departments and stuff, so that's fair enough. But we're just talking about a one-man band starting up a business. So unless you want to get outside investment or something, uh, you you know you can do it on a, a well. Some people do it on the back of an envelope. That's obviously quite amusing, but that's true. Some of the greatest businesses have started on the back of an envelope, yeah. and not you know why not? But once you get going, you need something in writing to keep you on the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. and uh, have something for your your team to buy into as well and so it's yeah really important yeah and i know that um jumping off of that the entrepreneurship game is usually a lonely game especially when you're first starting out and you alluded to the fact earlier that you met your wife liz in south africa and then when you started your company you had her as kind of like your your initial partner who was the sounding board to either do devil's advocate against some of your ideas or to even give you a new perspective on 
some of the ideas you were trying to run with. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, for first of all, picking a great partner, whether it's a life partner or a business partner, and then, you know, what are the key qualities to look out for in that relationship? I think it depends on what sort of person you are. I, I think they're kind of two basic types of people. Well, I, I don't mean types, but you'll see what I mean in a minute. So there's the, the person who's the visionary, who's got the ideas, who can see the big pictures, see where they're going, see where they're going to be in five years' time. That's kind of me. Um, I kind of look at like a helicopter view of things, mm -hmm. 35,000 feet. Um, I do not like detail. I do not like day-to-day -day management. But that's not much use if you want to build up a company. So um, if you can take on board someone who has those skills, someone who can execute your business plan, for example, they'll pretty much be doing operations. Then you're way to go. Um, Liz was actually more a sort of sounding board, and and I'd ask her strategic things, and I'd ask her a lot about human human resources because – you know, developing people skills is key, and and that's that takes some some time. And she would always give me a different perspective over over people, which really would make me think. Uh, so in the early days, I had to be the visionary and the uh, operations guy. But one of my regrets is that I never found this other person who could be the other half of me, really. Mm. Um, you know, there are Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, you know, were a great team, uh, and they complemented each other. And there are many, many stories like that, you know, Hewlett and Packard. I mean, the list goes on. But I'm afraid there's no Marcel and somebody else. There, mm. there, is, there is just me. And that puts a lot of burden on you because yeah. – it's lonely at the top, you know. And thank goodness for my wife. Uh, you know, although she didn't manage the company, she was fantastic help uh, strategically and uh, and with the staff. Yes, oh, yes, that's true. But I also know that in, in the book, you know, when you were expanding into new territories, you you did something which was quite um, unusual, which was that you were giving your Local partners in those new territories control of the the business in that in that area. So you'd form a joint venture, you'd give the person fifty one percent to to run the business, and then you keep forty nine percent. Of course, you provide the initial funding and the initial equipment so that the business can start up on the right foot. And that to me just exhibited a lot of trust you had in someone that you didn't have too much of a relationship with, but you just had a gut feeling that hey. For you to partner and work in this new locale, you know, it's better to have the person believe that, you know, they were in control of their destiny and they were also um, having an ownership stake in that. So so in some ways, yes, though globally you didn't have an a partner to bounce things off, but you kind of executed that locally in each territory you were operating in. How did you happen upon that strategy? Um. It was not easy, but I, I thought to myself, look, all these territories are, what, at least two hours flying time for me, uh, plus they all spoke a foreign language, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, five foreign languages. Um, 
but they did speak English. Uh, but if you know, for me to uh, to control their companies, uh, I would have to have gone to live in each one. <laughs> or speak the language to visit customers and everything. It just wasn't going to work out. So clearly they needed to do it all. They needed to uh, do all the work. Um, and you can't expect someone to do all the work and not get anything out of it. So I took the view that they needed to have a stake, a major stake in the company, uh, a majority stake. Uh, remember, this was all quite new to them back in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose I had an advantage in as much as I knew more than they knew, and they were quite happy to go along with anything I said. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you mentioned that word trust. Trust is key, and, and you know, I had to be t- open and transparent with them uh, on what I was trying to achieve. So as you say, I gave them 51% uh, of the company, I, I just figured that, look, if they want to screw me, um, they could, yeah. you know, whether I own 100% or 1% of the company, it's not really going to make a hell of a difference. But if if I give them, say, 51, they've they've got control, they feel they've got ownership of the business, and that is so important, so it's their business, so that will motivate them to really go the extra mile and build it. Uh, and that I trust them. And if you think about it, I don't know if you know anything about communist, communism um, that that was prevalent at that time, but that, there was no such thing as, as trust or ownership. Sure. Uh, in fact, there was mistrust and state ownership. Uh, so to actually have someone coming from, from the West fly in and trust you and give you all these things you know i mean they couldn't believe you know that all their christmases had come at once really um so yeah and it works this i i to this day i think those are the two main reasons why we've been successful Uh, i really do and and even speaking of the communist countries i one of the adventures that stuck out to me in the book was when you started operating in Russia and, you know, there are a lot of scary things going on in Russia at that time in the 1980s and early 90s with the privatization, you know, the giving out vouchers, and also even generally the corruption of state officials and banks and dealing with the mafiosi at the, at the time. You know, so tell us a little bit about some of those uh uh, adventures, if you will, for lack of a better word, of uh, dealing in that country when things were in such a chaotic state, but you still had to press on to to forge a way and get your products into the market in that space. Well, I think uh, this is this definitely highlights why you needed a local person mm. on the ground. I mean, you mentioned Russia. Now, uh, Russia had no transparent banks uh so you you know you wouldn't know what happened to your money they could come in and steal it and uh as you'll read in the book i was 30 minutes away from our bank stealing all our money um but my partner there sasha he understood the system now to understand the system in russia 
probably even today, you, you need a, a rocket science degree. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. Uh, you know, we had to have three sets of books, um, one the real set of books, um, and then the other two, depending on which auditor came along to check us out. Um, and one would want, say, $50,000 to give us a, a clean bill of health. Another would, would want uh, $20,000 or something. Or each law, each accounting law, uh, you could interpret in three different ways, wow. which is why you had to have three different sets of books. Now, how the hell would I know that? Uh, but Sasha knew, and he played the system, and, and, and it was just brilliant. Um, but, you know, sadly today there's, there's still huge corruption in that whole area. It's a difficult thing uh, to, to get rid of. We call it uh, black money. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, all my guys totally refuse. We have a culture that we will not, uh, we will not get involved in black money, uh, we will not bribe or you know anybody. I, I, the thought, to me, the thought of having a lowly purchasing manager there, earning a hundred thousand dollars because he happens to have the decision of whether to place an order with you or not, um, I, to me is just anathema. I just yeah. can't, you know, I just can't countenance it. So our culture is we won't touch it we'll just tell say to say to the customer no we're not interested in your business thank you very much take it away um and it's sad that but it doesn't go on as much as it used to yeah. it doesn't you can't do business in russia without black money and uh, so i've actually pulled out of russia uh, because i can't be doing with all that so there you go i want an easier life <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, um, so going from that, I, I think I want to jump back a little bit because I missed something quite important, and which was, you know what, um, when you got started, you needed to sell because you were in a. It was an emerging industry, but it was also a bit competitive. You had one or two competitors, and then you hired a salesperson by the name of Judith, who unfortunately passed away a few years later. Um, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, spotting the skills of a great salesperson. And if you can't hire a great salesperson right away, how can you develop those skills internally to grow your business if you're a solopreneur? Yeah, sales is crucial, isn't it? I mean, without a salesperson or without sales, you know, revenue, you've not got no business. Mm. But, um, yes, yeah, spotting it, well... <laughs> I hate to say, but the way I spotted things in Judith was what she looked like when I first saw her knocking on my door, which is very shallow. And I apologize to all your lady listeners because that's very, very sexist and very un-PC. But, of course, in those days, it wasn't. Um, uh, I had a, a sort of saying that sex sells. I don't mean sex, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, prostitution and all that. I mean, sex good appeal. looking. Yeah. Yeah, sex. Thank you. That's exactly right. Sex appeal. I mean, you're a man. Wouldn't you rather have an attractive lady coming to sell something to you than some, somebody like me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's face it, this is human nature. And also, ladies, I find, um, are amazing at selling, almost much better than men, yes. because they can think out of the box, 
Um, and they and they really feel they have more to prove. This is in those days, by the way, uh, in case people are shouting at the microphone, <laughs> talking rubbish. So this, listeners, this is this is thirty years ago, or whatever. Um, and and Judith was she was she hadn't sold before. Um, so I liked her appearance. I liked her personality. I mean, that is very important. Uh, and I liked her handshake. She had a very strong handshake, looked me in the eye, um, and, and that's brilliant. That is so important because that shows attitude. It shows a, a can-do attitude rather mm-hmm. than have a wet fish handshake, which totally puts me off. Um, and then I just trained her, you know. Uh, I, I think the, the best skill you can have as a salesperson is to listen mm-hmm. uh, how many times I've sat with salespeople who just talk over the customer. Uh, they don't sit and listen to what they want because if you listen to somebody and, and then you're silent and you say nothing, uh, they feel embarrassed. They, they feel they need to fill this silence mm-hmm. and they'll fill that silence with information that they had no intention of giving you because mm. there's nothing else to say. Uh, so it's kind of who blinks first. And um, so I think silence is a great skill. And um, so I taught Judith silence. I taught her, you know, how to get to a customer at 9 o'clock in the morning, even if they were three hours away, mm-hmm. uh, how to finish at, uh, I don't know, 5.30 at night and, still got to drive home at three o'clock, how to cram in as many customers as possible. Of course, in those days, we didn't have satellite navigation systems. So you had to pour over a map and plan your journeys, which was a bit of a pain. Um, So, you know, salespeople have it easy these days. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you've got to know your product backwards and forwards and sideways. You've got to know all the technology because you've got to answer the questions from customers um, and then you've got to understand their needs and not try and sell them something just because you've got it. Mm. They may not need it, you know. And sure. and another important thing, don't over-promise and under-deliver. Never, ever promise a delivery that you can't meet just because you think that's what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And I could go on and on and on, actually, but I won't because it'll be boring. But that, that, yeah. that, that's my two penny worth. Of, of sales. Awesome. So on the other side of yeah. that is, you know what, when a company is struggling. So take, for example, if you're in a recessionary environment and things are tight and you can't seem to make a go of it. Now, you've been running this business for over 30 years. You've probably seen every cycle there is. So... Tell us a little bit more about, you know, dealing with difficult situations. We're talking about either it's a macro situation where the whole economy is having problems or it's a micro and your industry is shifting and changing and you need to adapt. Or even if you're facing a situation like uh, a bankruptcy or a foreclosure or something like that, which you, you almost went into at one point in time. So tell us a little bit about how to... Think and navigate your way through difficult and challenging moments in your business. Yeah. Uh, The first thing you need to have is a lot of self-confidence and a lot of self-belief and be a positive person. 
because you're right, you're going to get lots lots of knocks, and uh, I mention a lot of them in my book, um, which is why I thought I might turn it more into a business book to help entrepreneurs through their the life cycle of their business because mm. there, there will be lots of knocks, and I had plenty. Um, and so perseverance is key. Uh, so going back to self, so you need the self-confidence to, to, to think that you can overcome things, the self-belief that your vision is the right vision and you're on the right path and everything, uh, and that will cope with any, any negative people in your organization that try and uh, bring you down. Um, and then the, the risk, you know, you, you have to make uh, difficult decisions uh, when you're challenged. Um, when times are bad, uh, you know, it's unexpected. You can't necessarily predict it. Yes. Um, in my book, I talk about a company I wanted to buy, which was a no-brainer. I get my money back in a year. And I went to ask the bank for the money, and they put me into incubation, i.e. they kind of froze my account, saying I was going to go bust. <laughs> uh, within six months, I've said to them, you must be joking. I've got a great business here. This is a no-brainer. What are you talking about? And they were right. They saw um, that I was going to run out of cash. I mean, this was a huge, huge lesson. And... Um, so uh, anyway, I won't give too much away. Read yes. the book, but uh, <laughs> but um, that was one of the many uh, dramas in my life. <clears throat> so perseverance, um, picking yourself up off the floor, uh, and carrying on. Uh, one interesting point about Americans—I don't know if Canadians are the same. I'm talking about the banks here. Uh, if you want to start a business or or even ask for more money or loans, uh, the more times you've gone bankrupt, the better. Really? Uh, yeah. And, and this is very interesting because on this side of the pond, if you've gone bankrupt, oh, you know, oh, you're frowned upon and oh, the bank's very unlikely to want to deal with you again. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas your side of the pond, oh, this is fantastic because this means you've uh, no. learned a lot of things, you know, and you're not going to make the same mistake twice. Therefore, you're an extremely investable individual. Wow. Now, I think that's a much better attitude uh, than we have over here. I mean, that, that, that you know, I think that's absolutely correct. Mm. I, I, th I think the Canadian model is closer to the British model than the American model, if I do say so. How do you think? I think okay. so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we can't change that one then. <laughs> but that actually brings me to the point about money and borrowing money, um, if you're a business. A lot of people who want to start a business, they use the fact they don't have any money as an excuse not mm -hmm. to. And I say, now, you know, don't look at that as an excuse because that's such an easy excuse not to do something. You really don't need that much money unless you've got to buy huge amounts of stock or something. You can start, if you're clever, you can use your customers' money because you get them to pay you before you have to pay your suppliers. 
Um, and you need that's a lesson to learn throughout the life cycle of the business. Um, and you can go to mum and dad, you can go to friends, you can borrow a bit here, there, you can use your credit card. A bank will probably give you a few thousand dollars overdraft anyway. So you've got a little bit of seed money there. And you you just build it up, and as I say, use other people's money, mm-hmm. cash flow, basically, uh, to run your business, uh, and and then it grows from there. I, I mean, I haven't had an overdraft in my business for well since um, my tough times, mm-hmm. which uh, you mentioned in two thousand one. Uh, actually, a bank wouldn't give me an overdraft after that. Uh, so I just had to do without, and I haven't had an overdraft for 17 years, mm. uh, and it works fine, you know. Make you get by. Yeah, and I, I think the the lessons I got in your personal story was basically, you know what, you can't just sit down and say I'm bottled in by this problem or that problem or that other problem you have to actually start thinking creatively outside of you don't have money okay i need to go negotiate with my suppliers with my bank with my you have to go talking to people and start figuring out hey do you want us to both lose money and go bankrupt because this is what's going to happen or do you want to give me some time to try and fix this and then we continue to make money and we continue to win going forward it's your choice and that's how you negotiate and navigate your way through problems which is a great example yeah, that's exactly what happened to my two major suppliers. They uh, either had to waive my debt um, or see me bankrupt. Um, they chose to waive the debt, and, of course, I do huge amounts of business with them now. So mm. it was just a drop in the ocean to them in those days. Nice. So as we've talked a lot about your your business and some of the lessons you've shared in the book, uh, I don't want to dive too deeply in the book. I want people to actually go get the book and learn. I want to transition as we're starting to wind down the show towards your personal life and um, what what you want to accomplish with your career going forward. So it, it, you wrote that you're a mental motivator. You're interested in turning a few people into millionaires and you're, you've already helped seven people become millionaires. So tell us a little bit more about this goal and why is it so personal to you? Well, you mentioned at the, uh, at the top of the program that I had a nickname, Mr. Mental Vata. Mm-hmm. Um, that came from... Um, one of the ladies I, uh, whose business I chaired, because I do mentor a lot of uh, young people, and not necessarily young people as well, but, you know, in in a startup situation or pre-startup or, or during their business career. And uh, I really want to continue. I actually would like to spend more time doing that. Um, I'd like to, and now that I've written this book, um, with a focus on entrepreneurship, I quite like to go along to universities or business schools and lecture or speak about it, um, try and encourage as many people to start businesses as possible. Mm. There was a, um, a survey done in the UK recently that there are about 2.6 million people who've been identified as wanting to start their own business, Mm -hmm. but they they haven't for various reasons, one of which actually is is money supply funding. Mm -hmm. 
uh, because of you know financial crises and various things, banks haven't been lending money to entrepreneurs. And I know our government is trying to change that. Uh, I don't know what your government does about it, but uh, the, the funding, small funding at least, is needed. And uh, entrepreneurs, I think, should be given special status uh, because they're the lifeblood uh, of the economy. Yeah. And uh, they need support from their government. And uh, so if there's something I could do to help, uh, that's that's kind of a mission now, really. And, yes, I'd love to create some millionaires and uh, give them the benefit of my experience. Why not? Yeah. And um, do, uh, do you see yourself more as a, a business coach, strategist, or more like a personal development mentor who wants to pull out the best out of your mentees? Yeah, I, the latter, because... Okay. Because a coach really, you know, tells people what to do, trains them what to do. I'm more, you know, you come up with a problem and then solve it yourself. And mm -hmm. I'll just, you know, give you a steer uh, and you can cry on my shoulder and benefit from my experience. But at the end of the day, I want you to do it yourself, be responsible for yourself and pat yourself on the back because <laughs> it was your idea, your decision, even if it wasn't sort of thing, you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. No, awesome. Awesome stuff. And uh, along those lines, are you still actively running your business or are you kind of like taking the position of the chairman and just giving strategic oversight and looking at the board and giving your comments and then actively transitioning towards this um, different part of your career? Yeah, that's right. I'm okay. I, I'm strategic. I, yes, I set the direction of the company, do all the strategy. In fact, I've just come back from Hungary yesterday where we've done the planning for next year. Mm. And uh, that's what I love to do because <clears throat> as market leaders out there, we have to be ahead of uh, the latest technology mm -hmm. um, so that we can be the like the three-year technology uh, roadmap trusted advisor for our customers. Yeah. Um, so we've got to know what's going on. And um, that's what I like to do. I do all this research and make sure I know what's happening in the rest of the world. And being based in England, it's quite useful because Eastern Europe is probably three years behind the West. We're probably a bit behind America. Yeah. So I can see what's coming down the pipe and um, pass that on to my guys. Yeah. So that's kind of my function while they run the run the business. Uh, and, and do you look at, I, I know you're also a keen student of the environment and noticing trends and trying to get in on some of the latest things. So are you focused on looking at things like internet technologies and startups and investing and just making sure that, you know what, whatever is changing, it might not necessarily be within your industry, but as a whole, you're trying to ride that wave? I, I, my, my current interest is uh, the Internet of Things, okay. uh, which is basically sensors talking to each other, um, and there are going to be 50 billion of those by yeah. 2020. 
Um, and if you think about it, a barcode is uh, similar. It's almost, you know, it, it's always on with the internet 24-7. So yeah. you can get data uh, the whole time out of a barcode. Uh, and also I'm looking at blockchain, uh, which I think will change the world. That's, um don't know if you guys know about blockchain. I'm sure you probably do. But yeah. the, the, it's it's um, from from a enterprise perspective it's going to you know you know you can change your supply chain to have a decentralized database that's immutable and transparent mm -hmm. uh, which will prevent fraud it'll cut out the middleman it'll 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 stop counterfeit food and pharmaceutical products might even make banks obsolete so this is a great play that uh, i'm working on right now and that'll probably be my swan song. I sh once I've got that going, I'll probably bow out and leave it to the next generation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on with my mentoring thing. That's probably the best thing for me. <laughs> oh, awesome. And I guess as we start to wind down the show, I think I have two final questions for you. And my first one is, uh, you know, from reading the book, I know you're also a passionate philanthropist and you have certain projects that you support. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your philanthropic life and what you're doing to help make society a better place, given all you've been able to benefit and accomplish in your career. Uh, well, I've recently had to retire from being a magistrate, uh, so um, part of my giving back, I suppose, uh, public duty, and I really miss that because it's so exciting. The law, I I once wanted to be a lawyer mm. until, until I realized it was going to be seven, seven years of studying, and I didn't really fancy that. Uh, <laughs> I regret that now when I see all the fees the lawyers are charging me. <laughs> I must be mad to have rejected that one. But anyway, uh, so yes, um, that was one thing. So when I when I gave that up, uh, I um, I became um, a, uh, a counsellor, a local counsellor, mm. uh, which is like uh, I don't know if you have something over there. Yeah, we do. But, Oh, you do? Yes, okay, do. Right. So I'm a local counsellor and I help my residents with their problems and their planning and this kind of thing. And uh, I was a champion of the older resident until we lost the election in May. Uh, so I had to look after all the old older people. I got them onto uh, using iPads, which I thought was quite fun, to get to stop all loneliness and isolation we have 51% of our older residents here are all isolated, and some of them don't even see anybody for a month oh. uh, to speak to, and it, it's tragic. But I think connecting them to the Internet, you mentioned the Internet, uh, using an iPad, which is so simple. I, I got all our charities to hold workshops um, free um, and provide uh, iPads to all these um older residents and that's that's gone down a treat they love it i've even got 90 year olds using ipads it's 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 very fulfilling so those kind of things i like to do and my wife lisa likes to do um look after dogs and uh, senior dogs that haven't got home or astray or in fact, we're going to a carol service tonight at the Battersea dogs home mm -hmm. so uh 
you know, she wants to go to an elephant sanctuary. So I guess we're heavily into animals as well. Mm. You know, fortunately I've got time to do these things now. I didn't have that before. Yeah, yeah. And my final question would be, looking back on your career thus far, based on everything you've learned and everything you've accomplished, do you think there's anything you would have wanted to do differently, knowing what you know now? I always tell my mentees, never have any regrets. Mm. Don't regret anything. I mean, uh, yes, okay, I'm regret, I am I could say I regret not having built up General Motors or something like that, you know. I quite fancied um, being a, a CEO of a really large company and sorting it out from from its, you know, bankruptcy, basically. But then, you know, that's it's not a regret, but it's something I quite like to have done. Um, would I have done anything differently? Actually, actually, no. Um, at one time, I wanted to rule the world and have joint <laughs> ventures in every single country. Um, but then I realized how much traveling that would take and that I'd be away from home forever. Um, so that would be a bit of a stress. So I gave up that idea. I mean, I've had so many crack, crack about cracked brain ideas over my life but i've ended up on this path and i love it and i have no regrets um i'm sure lots of things i might have done differently but there's no sense in looking back is it what you know what you've done you've done what you've learned you've learned you just go forward move on and and enjoy life you know i'm into the stage where quality of life is the important thing for me so uh, I can't afford to to regret anything, really. Um, yeah. Good way to put it. Good way to put it. And on that note, we've reached the end of the show. It's really been a pleasure and a delight talking to you, Brian. But before I let you go, tell us a little bit more about where people can find you, reach out to you, and also get a hold of the book. Yeah, well, the book is key, of course. Thank you for mentioning <laughs> it, G. <laughs> Raise the bar, change the game. Available on Amazon.com. Uh, in fact, Amazon.everything, I'm pleased to say. Uh, I have a website called brianmarcel.net. Uh, you can see most of my media and stuff on that. Um, and uh, that's it, really. You know, anybody who wants to drop me a line, feel free. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put a link to that on the show notes when this episode is going live. So, Brian, thanks a lot for coming to share your story and words of wisdom. I truly appreciate you taking the time. And, of course, given that this is um, December, I, 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 I kind of want you to give us a final parting word in terms of people that are looking to plan their next year, whether they're looking to say, hey, you know what, in 2019, I am going to eventually launch my business or i'm going to step away from corporate and start a side hustle or something so so give us a little something that we can use to start off 2019 on a good note yeah uh, just do it don't make excuses if you want to start something just go out and start it what is the worst that can possibly happen to you you'll end up back where you are today is that such a bad thing? Mm. I don't think so. Mm. And a happy Christmas. <laughs> 
All right. So there you have it, guys. Just do it. You know, the worst that can happen is you will fail. But you know what? Many people have failed before. It's not the end of the world. You get back up and you start again. And as long as you take it as a learning point and not necessarily a personal thing, you'll be all right. All the success stories you've heard and you've seen, it takes repeated failures for people to become a success that you see today. So there's a lot of uh, immunity and a lot of falling and crying and scraping your knees until you become very successful like Brian. So Brian, thanks a lot for coming to share your story and your words of wisdom. I truly appreciate everything you've shared and everything you've taught us today on this episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. Thank you very much, Chi, and I love the title, Bulletproof Entrepreneur. (laughs) I wish we all were. (laughs) Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.